here's where we are today. This is week three of a teaching series that we have affectionately titled Things That Are Hard To Do. The the idea basically is that following Jesus is difficult, right? He said to pick up our cross, deny ourselves, follow him. And along that journey, sometimes there are particular things in the life of a person or the life of a church or in a season of life that are particularly hard to do. And so today we're going to tackle that ever so touchy subject, uh, things that are hard to do, engaging in politics. And uh, I I was going to do something like, okay, if you lean more to the left politically, go stand up and get on this side. If you lean to the right, stand up and sit over there. If you're more libertarian, well, who cares? They're out in the lobby doing whatever they want anyways. You know, like just, I'm not going to do that. I promise we're going to stick close to the word of God and we're going to see what Jesus has to say. And uh, I'm I'm really hopeful. I'm actually... uh, not nervous or fearful. I really am excited and and, and eager to share some thoughts with you. And so before we do anything, I'm going to invite Jenny to come. She's going to do our scripture reading. We're in Acts chapter 17. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to read along with us, or you can follow along on the screen. This is the word of the Lord from the book of Acts 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Amen. Amen. Friends, do you pray with me? Father God, we we come before you today, and we want to acknowledge uh, more than anything else uh, that Jesus is the king. Jesus, you are the king of kings. You are the Lord of lords. And as we dive into this subject today, Um, God, for myself, I pray that you would guard my lips. I really want to uh, do your word honor and justice today. I want to, uh, for myself and my own part, uh, serve these people well. God, for each of us, wherever we're coming from, uh, not just politically, but emotionally or spiritually, even physically today, we want to just come and meet with our King Jesus. And so I ask for your protection over this time. I ask for your spirit to lead and guide us as we dive into this passage and into this topic. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Politics. Coupled with religion, that's one of those two don't talk about it subjects, right? I actually remember my my mom said uh, that growing up, she was explicitly told, we're going over to so-and-so, we're going over to Aunt you know, Edna's house. Don't talk about religion or politics. 2018, in our era, you could probably add, don't talk about breastfeeding or gluten to the list of subjects. But actually, politics is still right there. 
It's one of those, it's one of those subjects you don't talk about unless you're itching for a fight. Show of hands, be honest. How many of you, just the mere mention of like, oh, somebody's going to start talking about politics, you feel like you want to kind of shrink back in, into the corner, okay? I would ask for those of you, how many of you are like, oh yeah, let's do this, but I don't want you to raise your hands. Yeah, I, I see that hand, Claudia. <clears throat> you know, this uh, last week, I finished watching um, the documentary series, The Vietnam War by Ken Burns. Have any of you guys watched uh, that, that one in particular? It's Ken Burns, so it's 18 hours long. I'm not exaggerating. Uh, and I watched through it all over the course of the last month. And, you know, as, as heated as our time is politically, it was actually really helpful. It's not helpful, but it was helpful to kind of look back and realize like that decade from 1963, we had the assassination of, of President Kennedy, which then, you know, you've got the space race going on. You've got the civil rights movements and marches and sit-ins and protests and arrests on TV. You've got the Vietnam War happening, and there's protests and marches. And it seemed like at one point, especially in the late 60s, 68, 69, it's like every other weekend there was a march on Capitol Hill. Uh, there was the, the Kent State shooting, which I'm not old enough to remember, but some of you might remember where on a college campus, students were protesting. The National Guard actually came in and four students were shot and killed on campus. Do you remember that? And I'm just like, I'm learning about these things. Uh, you, you, you go through... Um, you know, the, the, the breakdown between generations, kind of an unprecedented generation gap, you know, between the, the greatest generation, those who had fought and served in World War II, and then the baby boomer generation, which culminated in Woodstock, which at the time was one of the largest gatherings of people on record in human history. And then, 68, you've got uh, President Kennedy's brother was assassinated, followed shortly after by Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, and then you've, like, this, this is all, like, in one decade. The decade ends with the resignation of President Nixon amidst scandal and controversy and pending impeachment. But I forgot about this. I remember learning about it maybe in history class, but Vice President Spiro Agnew had resigned just a year before that. So you had the Vice President resigning for bribes, the President resigning. Like, that is a chaotic decade. Do you feel encouraged? I mean, here, the point, the, the point I'm trying to make here is this, as, as, as much as it feels like right now we're in a season of great political turmoil and political heat, let's not give place to recency bias, okay? That's just a fancy word that means we only care about what's going on right now or the thing that's the most recent thing to happen seems like the biggest deal. Really, if you start studying history at all, you will understand and recognize that the history of humanity is the history of people fighting about politics, I read last fall uh, for a class I was in, I had to to read the book, uh, The City of God by St. Augustine. And this is, you know, it was written early 400s, 400 AD. So, you know, better part of 1600 years ago. And he's wrestling with how do we as Christians engage with politics and engage with the government? That really is kind of the question that we're going to seek to answer today. It's this, is how do we, as followers of Jesus, how do we engage in politics in a way that is honoring to God, faithful to the scripture, and loving to our neighbor, even those we might disagree with politically, okay? So can we agree that this would be a good thing if we could do that? You guys agree? A couple quick definitions. When we talk about politics, the word for politics comes from the Greek word polis, which just means the city. The city. And so the word politics basically means, you know, How do we live together in society? How do we have a city together? 
How do humans interact with one another? I, I also, for the class I was in, I had to read uh, the book, uh, The Republic by Plato. Plato, the ancient Greek philosopher, a few hundred years uh, before the time of Jesus, he said that the ideal city should be exactly 5,040 people, no more, no less. And it should never change. Like if, if somebody dies, somebody else needs to get pregnant and have a baby. And if somebody has a baby, well, we got to ax somebody. Like 5,040 was like his favorite number. And that's the size of the city that you should have. So I don't know what that's worth, but I just thought I'd mention it. The question is though, when you look at this definition of, of politics, it's, it's human society. How do humans get along? It, it kind of raises us another question. Is the gospel political? Is the gospel political? Now, you know me, so you probably know that I'm going to say something like yes and no. The answer no is, is the gospel is not to be completely wrapped up, tied up with one particular political system, one particular political party. Again, as, as I've already kind of said to you, and we're going to get into more in depth, Jesus is the king and the kingdom of God transcends all earthly politics. Amen? However, there is a sense in which, let me, let me ask it to you this way. Does God care how we get along and interact with each other in society? Yes or no? He absolutely does. So there is a political, when I say the gospel is political, I almost am meaning it like capital P political. I'm not meaning it Republican versus Democrat, you know, liberal versus conservative. I'm meaning it capital P political. God cares not just about the salvation of your soul, but about everything that your life is and everything that you do and everything that we are as humans. There's a book called City of Man by two authors, Michael Gerson and Peter Weiner. Uh, I, I, I lean heavily on them in particular this week. I've linked to the book up on the website. Highly recommend it. It's not particularly long. You could, you could read through it relatively quickly. But I'll give you a quote about this idea. Is the gospel political? It says this, As all human activity, from the mundane to the profound, from personal lives to professional careers, falls under God's domain— so authentic Christian faith should be relevant to the whole of life. It ought not to be segregated from worldly affairs. So with all due respect to those who would say, keep your religion private, the fact of the matter is that's just not an option. Because God cares about our lives and our lives are intermingled with relationships with other people. Yes, in the city and the state and the nation and the world in which we live. Now, Here's where we're going to go today. We're going to focus in on this passage in Acts 17. But before we get to that passage in Acts 17, I want to lay some biblical foundations. So I have five points that are foundational points. Then I have five points that I want to make about the passage in Acts 17. Then I have three points that I want to give to you as far as living it out. Bringing our total, this is one of those classic 13-point sermons. I actually, I have one point for each original American colony. So that's how we're, that's how we're going to do it today. Okay, yeah, yeah. I'm going to try to get you out of here before Advent, okay? <clears throat> I am going to move quickly. There is no way uh, for me to exhaustively explain each of these. I am going to move quickly. Again, sermon notes are up on the web. If you're a note taker, you know, loosen up. Here we go. The first point that I want to make is a very simple one. It's this. God is a God of authority. God has all authority. Again, this is a simple point. I don't need to belabor it. But sometimes, in particular, in our, in our culture where we've been affected by um, 
a Marxist ideology that puts everything into categories of power, and very often power is viewed as bad. Power can be used very badly, amen? But that does not mean that power and authority and rule and reign is in itself bad because God is a God of authority. I could point to you to dozens, maybe even hundreds of verses. I just referenced one in 1 Chronicles 29. It's when King David is praying to put his son Solomon in as the king. And he says things like this. He says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Like he's just piling it on. This is an inauguration ceremony, right? Think about it, you know, every four years or so when we inaugurate a new president, all the people gather together. It's like that. It's that type of a scene. And David is saying, yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. God is a God of authority. And he has it all. It all belongs to him. Point number two. I'm doing great so far. Here we go. God delegates and shares authority. Isn't that interesting, that when we consider the nature of God, the absolute uncaused cause, the one who breathed the universe into existence by the word of his power, he has all authority, he has all power, he has all rule and reign, and yet in the earliest pages of the Bible, what does he do? He creates man and woman, male and female, in the image and likeness of God, and he says to them, be fruitful, fill the earth, and what's the word? Subdue it. And then he says, I want you to have dominion. Dominion, that's a ruling term, right? Dominion over, get this, the fish of the sea, the animals that crawl on the land, and, oh yeah, the birds of the heavens. Now, I don't know about you, I am a land-based creature. Uh, I go into the ocean occasionally, but it's very shallow, like, you know, a few feet, but here God is saying to the, to the man and to the woman, to humanity, he says, you've got dominion not just over the land, but over the water and over the sky where we can't even go. We're the ones that are in charge of that because God is the kind of God who is known for delegating and sharing authority. So he has it all. And there's something in his character that says, I want to, I want to share this experience with others. Point number three, human authority at its best, should reflect God's authority. We were created to be in his image and in his likeness. And that's a profound statement. We are like God. We are in his image. We are created to represent him. And when we rule and when we have dominion and when we subdue the earth, we are to do it as God would do it. A representative, a picture of his goodness and his glory and his majesty and his rule. That's what we're supposed to rule like. Yet our first parents, Adam and Eve, from the very beginning of the story, Genesis chapter 3 said, no thank you God, we want to rule as we see fit. We want to do things the way that we want to do things. And it could be said that the Bible, the majority of the the story of the Bible, all of the, the negative parts, the sinful parts, us as human beings trying to take rule and authority in a way that does not reflect God, which is why Jesus in in places like Matthew 20, he says, you know, the, the Gentiles, they do this thing where they lord it over people. They get authority and they want more. They want authority. They try to take more and they want to let you know that you're under their authority. He goes, it's not going to be the way with my followers. My people no, they're going to be servants. They like me are going to divest themselves of authority and power and responsibility because our God is a God who loves to delegate and to share authority. 
So with that, with those in place, then we specifically come to the idea of government. Number four, government is viewed throughout the pages of the Bible as a common grace good. The right and proper usage of authority is viewed as a common grace good. Quick show of hands. How many of you were here when we went through the book of Judges as a church? You guys remember the book of Judges? Some of you, I've blocked a lot of it out of my memory because it was really painful. Uh, the stories are dark. The scene is bleak. They are, it is, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a dark book. Why? What was the refrain that kept coming up over and over and over again in the pages of Judges? Why was everything so screwed up? In those days, there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So, with due respect to my anarchist friends, of which I have a few, um, <clears throat> government is viewed as a common grace good. A whole sermon series could be preached on Romans 13, but I'll just simply point you to that, where the Apostle Paul says, hey, you should obey your leaders, you should submit to them, you should respect their authority. They bear the sword, they have the actual uh, role and domain to bring punishment on the evildoer and to keep people safe. That's the role of the government. It's a common grace good. I went to uh, a concert last night, went and saw Foo Fighters, and, uh, you know, I... uh, I couldn't decide which shirt to wear. I'm like, I've got, I know which one to, I'll just wear the other one tomorrow. So I uh, went to the Foo Fighters and, and, and it's a big crowd. I don't know, probably, you know, 40,000 people or something like that down there in, in downtown Seattle. And you know who was there? The police. And, and I, this is, this is I, I didn't say anything to my wife last night, but like I'm sitting there in the stadium and I just started having some of these flashbacks about various shootings and terrorist attacks and things that we've seen at, at concerts and live events. And I kind of had this like moment of just fear and a little bit of kind of morbid. But then I, I looked down and I saw police officers, police officers walking around. And I'm like, I'm really thankful that there's someone here who bears the sword, metaphorically speaking, that is interested in keeping me safe and punishing the wrongdoer, right? That, can we just agree? That's a good thing. Without getting into misuses of authority or, or all the different heat and, and, and all the stuff that's going on, let's just agree with what the Bible says that government has a role. Now, here's the thing, though. Like all common grace goods, that role is limited. When I use that term common grace, there are many things that all people enjoy, whether they are Christians or non-Christians, whether they have bowed their knee to Jesus and trusted him or not, we all still enjoy a good steak, right? You don't have to be a Christian to enjoy a good steak. Can I get an amen? Right? It's better when you're a Christian because you're like, man, the eternal feast at the end of the age, it's going to be better than this. And so we get to revel and you start exulting and you just start praying in the middle of the restaurant, you know, at the steakhouse. Pray for my wife. Date night can be awkward sometimes, right? But like, you don't have to be a Christian to enjoy a beautiful sunset. You don't have to be a Christian to enjoy uh, a beautiful symphony. You don't have to be a Christian to enjoy the benefits of this common grace of government. There's a role that government plays just in human society in general. The problem is with all common graces, there's a limited scope to it. Jesus is ultimate, but common graces are limited. And the real problem is because of our fallenness and because of our sin, very often government tries to take a larger role than what God has given to it. Common graces have a limited role. Government has a limited role. Government is not ultimate. Only Jesus is ultimate. Government is good. It is a common good. It is something we should thank God for, but we should not put our ultimate hope in it. 
G.K. Chesterton, uh, uh, great um, Catholic writer and, and scholar around the late 1800s, early 1900s. He had an amazing mustache too, by the way. Uh, he had a quote that I really liked. It says this, abolish religion if you like, throw everything on the secular government if you like, but do not be surprised if a machinery that was never meant to do anything but secure external decency and order fails to secure internal honesty and peace. That's a a brilliant quote. Brilliant quote. Government is a common grace, but it's a limited common grace, which leads me to the fifth and final foundational point. You guys, I'm just, I want to pause. I feel like I'm doing really well so far. Moving through the points. I'm going to get you out of here before Thanksgiving, okay? The fifth point of this foundational one is that Christians are good for society. When we understand that God is a God of authority, when we understand that our our exercise of authority, whether in the government or in the home or in the classroom or in the business, our our authority should reflect God's. When we recognize that that government is a common grace good and has an important but limited role, well then Christians are good for society. Again, many verses I could take you to, but just one in Proverbs 11, which says, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. But by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. So, dear Christians, you are to have a net positive effect on whatever society, culture you are a part of. That's part of what it means to be the redeemed people of God. Now, With those important foundations in place, I want to dig into this story in Acts chapter 17 for a few minutes and see what we can learn in particular about how to engage with politics. But are we, are we, are we good with those foundations thus far? A lot more could be said, a lot more that I cut out of my notes, but I think those are some of the most important pieces and keys that we need to have in place before we look at this passage. Acts 17, picking up in verse one. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, which, uh, major props, Jenny, for reading those correctly this morning. Great job. Uh, I was a little nervous myself. They came to Thessalonica. There was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul, this is the Apostle Paul, so this is after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Saul converted. He's also known as Paul. He's traveling throughout the, the greater Roman world, telling people Jesus is the Messiah. On three Sabbath days, so for three weeks, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now listen to this, I love this. Some of them were persuaded. Some of these Jewish people were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, but also a great many of the devout Greeks. These are non-Jewish people. They're not ethnically Jewish, but they believe in Yahweh, the, the God of the Jewish people, the God of the scriptures. And they are now believing that Christ is the promised Messiah, as well as not a few. So not a few, but like a bunch, right? That's a weird way of saying it. So like a whole, a whole lot of the leading women. The leading women, I love that because right here we've hit, we've hit ethnicity, gender, and economics. The leading women would mean important in society, very likely wealthy. So what are the things that divide people? Gender, ethnicity, money, politics. Uh, and we've got them all right here in this one passage. So the, the, the first thing that we can see in this, in this story is 
point number six, if you're taking notes. I think that's Connecticut. Um, uh, point number six is this. <laughs> the gospel belongs to all people. The gospel belongs to all people. Jesus unites people together. Think about not just this passage. Think about Jesus' own group of disciples. Did you know that Jesus had among his crew of disciples a guy named Simon the Zealot? This is not Simon Peter, although he was a zealot as well, but specifically Simon the Zealot, he was part of a a political party known as the Zealots. And let me just, you know, if you can't figure out from the name, this political party was kind of intense. The Zealots. Do you know what they were uh, in favor of? Revolution and overthrow of the Roman government by whatever means necessary. Freedom fighters, political revolutionaries, they hated the Roman government. Jesus had one of those, right? He also had a guy named Matthew the tax collector. Do you know who the tax collectors worked for? The Roman government. Well, they were Jewish people that worked for the puppet Jewish government that often skimmed extra money, kept it for themselves, and paid money to the Roman government to give to Caesar. Can you imagine starting a business or starting a, starting a community group, and in your community group, you have like the most rabid libertarian tea party member you've ever met in your entire life and a guy who works for the IRS, right? Like that's not even as extreme as what it was. Jesus, Jesus still to this day is bringing together all sorts of diverse groups of people. You know, what's also interesting. Jesus also unites people in opposition to him. During his earthly ministry, both the Pharisees and the Sadducees opposed him. The Pharisees and the Sadducees hated each other, but they also really hated Jesus. In this passage in Acts 17, the Jews were jealous, and it says, I love this, taking some wicked men of the rabble, which if there ever was a band name, that is one right there, right? Like a punk rock bluegrass band is what comes to mind for me, like wicked men of the rabble. So these Jews go and they find, like they, they're, they're so devout, They love the God of the Bible so much that they're going to go unite with wicked men of the rabble in this non-Jewish city to stand against the message of Jesus. To stand against what these people are saying. You guys, the gospel, at the heart of the gospel, this is not some add-on to the gospel. This really is at the core message of the gospel that Jesus, through his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection, has united us vertically in right relationship to God, but has also united us horizontally one to another. Amen? Go read Ephesians 2. It's up there on the slide. Go look at it when we're done here. But Ephesians 2, Paul gets done talking about we're predestined before the foundations of the earth. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. You've been saved unto good works. And then he goes into this whole thing about how Jesus has come through his death to break down the dividing wall of hostility, making one new man out of the two the Jew-Gentile distinction that was once in place, the thing that we would separate over, we're now made one in Jesus Christ. This is not some down-the-line add-on to the gospel. This really is at the heart of the mission of God himself, to bring people together. And, you know, it's so 
overused and misused and we're going to bring all the people together and, and the, 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 the world's best efforts can't truly unite us. But when we have surrendered everything in our lives to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, when all of those other things start to fall down, we find our true unity with other people in him. In him. Verse 6. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason. So Jason is a local guy who lives here in Thessalonica. This is really all we ever hear of him. He's basically offering them housing and lodging. They, they found Jason, the wicked men of the rabble, found Jason and some of the brothers. They dragged them before the city authorities. That's our word, polis, politics right there. Shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down. That's awesome have come here also. Jason has received him and they are all, get this, listen carefully, acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king. What's his name, Sound City? Jesus. So point number seven is simply this. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. Make no mistake, the conflict here is political in nature. These people are out there turning the world upside down. They're not obeying the rules and the laws and the statutes of Caesar because there was a law in place that you had to say things like Caesar is Lord. It was printed on the money. It was mandated by the Roman Empire. You had to say Caesar is Lord. Do you know what the earliest followers of Jesus would say? Jesus is Lord. Christ is is the curios, not Caesar. That puts them right smack dab in the crosshairs of the Roman Empire. But it shouldn't surprise us. In Mark chapter one, when Jesus very first starts preaching his, his public earthly ministry, what does it say that he does? He went throughout the countryside proclaiming the what? The kingdom of God. Repent, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. In John 18, Jesus says things like, you know, my kingdom is is not of this world. It's a very different type of kingdom. And so to be saved, to be united to God in right relationship through faith in the death, resurrection, and Jesus Christ means that Jesus is now your king. Above and beyond any other loyalty, above and beyond any other fealty, he is the king. Can I get an amen out of anybody this morning? You, you have to understand this. This is really an important diverging point because remember what I said earlier, that, that government, the nature of government, the nature of our fallen humanity, government has this tendency to expand itself to look much bigger than it really is. It's like a, it's like a puffer fish, right? Government's like a puffer fish and it's just as pokey and ugly and... Uh, that's a weird, I'll fix that for the next service, but I'll keep it in there. All right. So you you have this idea of like, oh, this is, this is what's so important and government is so important. And this is how we're going to get things done. And this is how things are going to be fixed. And Jesus is standing and saying, I'm the king. I'm the king. Verse eight, and the people and their city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money, as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So they took money, right? So this one, this particular story, many in Acts ended with an imprisonment, a beating. This one, they just find them, right? I'm just going to take money from you, okay? Like, oh, cool, thanks. And they let them go. 
<laughs> um, I want you to understand something. Christians are reconciled to God. We're brought into the kingdom of God. Jesus is our king. But the earthly authorities still can take money from you. The government still has that common grace place of authority. And so that leads us to this tension. And I'll put it this way. Christians live as dual citizens. Okay? You are citizens, assuming most of you, of the United States of America. Uh, We have a few Canadians. They sneak in. We love them. God can unite all people. Watching, they're going to throw maple syrup at me if I tease them too much. They wouldn't do that. Canadians are so nice. Um, We're part of an earthly kingdom, an earthly nation, an earthly empire. And yet at the same time, we are members, we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me ask you this. Is that easy to do? Saying, well, Jesus is the king, I'm part of his kingdom, but then recognizing, no, there is earthly government that has real authority. They can really find me. They could really throw me in prison. They could really kill you, yeah. There's, there's something that's developed over the years that's called, it has an official title. The official title is Two Kingdoms Theology. When you start studying about Christianity and politics, Two Kingdoms Theology is one of the first things that's going to kind of come up. I'll just simply say this. There's a sane version, and then there's an insane version, okay? The insane version is kingdom of God, kingdom of man, never the twain shall meet or mix. Like you, your, your, your spirituality has nothing to do with your earthly life and existence. That's not, that's not biblical. The sane version says, man, it's a real tough tension how to live in these two kingdoms, which actually leads me to the next point, which is this. In these two kingdoms, Christians live as exiles. Christians live as exiles. Christians, the people of God, even going back to the Old Testament, the people of Israel were removed from the land of Israel because of sin. They did not follow God as their king. They rebelled time and time again. In particular, the, the kings of the nation of Israel did a terrible job of leading towards righteousness, godliness, and honoring of, of God's will. So the people were sent to exile. And you get this famous chapter in Jeremiah 29 where, where God is speaking to the people and he says things like, no, I, I sent you into exile. I sent you there. And when the time is right, I will redeem you and I will bring you back. But in the meantime, what does he tell them to do? He says, I want you to seek the welfare of the city. Do you think, now we read that, we're like, oh yeah, seek the welfare of the city. Do you think that would have been hard for some of the people to hear? Being forcibly ripped out of your homeland by the evil empire of Babylon and here God is telling, nope, get used to it. I want you to build houses. I want you to plant gardens. I want you to have kids and raise them. And I want you to seek the welfare of the city for in its peace, you will find your peace. Whoa. Whoa. It's not just, you go in time out. When you're done, I'll let you back. It's like, no, I want you to go to time out. I want you to be a force for good as an exile. No political power, no political authority, no clout. Now, there was one guy. Actually, there was one gal too. A guy named Daniel. Remember him? Remember Esther, Queen Esther? You've heard of her? 
So there were a few people that had some opportunities to do good in the political governmental sphere. But think about the hundreds of thousands of people that had zero opportunity whatsoever to influence or impact the government. They just had to live as, as exiles. In 1 Peter, I won't take the time to go through, but if you read like the first couple of chapters, no fewer than three, I think maybe four times, Peter writing to New Testament Christians, he says, Dear exiles who were elect before the foundations of the world, I want you to remember in your time of exile until King Jesus returns, I mean, he's drawing on all of that Old Testament exile language, writing to us, saying, yeah, you're awaiting your kingdom. You're awaiting the return of your king. In the meantime, live as exiles. Dual citizenship, it's, when we think about dual citizenship, sometimes it's like, well, I take off this hat and I put on this other hat. I take, that's not how Christians are to live. We are not Americans one minute and Christians the next minute. Actually, <laughs> one, time, um, one time Pete's brother, Tim, was leading worship for us, and I was talking with Tim's son, who was maybe five years old at the time, and I, I was just chatting because Tim was leading worship, and, and uh, you, hear, you hear that, Pete, Pete's Pete's brother, Tim, he likes that. Uh, and I was talking to this, this kid and he just looks up at me and he goes, hey man, are you, are you a Christian? I was like, yeah, man, are you? He goes, no, nah, I'm American. I was like, what is happening in the Wilson household? This is, <laughs> that's not the type of dual citizenship that we have. We don't take on, take off one hat, put another one on. No, we live as exiles. If God gives us opportunities to have influence and impact, we take them, but we understand that our ultimate citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven. And right now we may suffer. We may face opposition. We will face opposition. And sometimes we're tempted to try to grasp for more power. And by the way, in, 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 the, in recent decades, that has been the approach of what is sometimes called the religious right. The, 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 the kind of take back America for God thing. That's been in recent decades. But in, in studying and looking, you look back in like the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, it was the mainline liberal Protestant denominations that are, we're going to go out and we're going to fix everyone's poverty. We're going to fix everyone's sickness. We're going to fix all injustices through government. So in the last century, both the left and both the right have tried to do it through political power and political authority. And I would submit to you, it doesn't often go well when we try to use kingdom of earth means to accomplish kingdom of God goals. It's a tough tension. Again, back to, to Gerson and, and Wenner, they say this, this dual citizenship is difficult. Historically, when the faithful have exercised political power, they have sometimes been responsible for oppression and have brought discredit on the faith itself. Christians have seldom been less appealing when acting in the name of Christendom. But when the faithful have ignored political power, they have sometimes, again, brought discredit on their ideals. An example of that would be the church in Germany during the rise of Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich. They said nothing. They did nothing. By and large, there were a few people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others who spoke out against injustices. But by and large, the church goes, ah, two kingdoms theology. That's politics. We don't have nothing to do with it. Leading to horrific Horrific outcomes. Sins of omission can be as deadly as sins of commission. So the exercise of politics requires walking a tightrope. It is both a temptation and a responsibility. It can act like an addictive drug or a healing medicine. Which leads me to my last and final point before my last and final three points, which is this. <laughs> Only the kingdom of God will last. 
Where are those city officials of Thessalonica now? There still is a city called Thessalonica. Is it the same government? Is it the same nation? Is it the same empire? Where? Oh, by the way, where is the Roman Empire today? Where's the Byzantine Empire? Where's the Ottoman Empire? Where's the Babylonian Empire? Where's the Assyrian Empire? Where's the Egyptian Empire? Should the Lord not return soon? Where will the American Empire be in a few hundred years? Nations come. Nations go. Only the kingdom of God will last. In the book of, of Revelation, there's this promise of, about, you know, when, when the time comes and, 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 and our king, Jesus, returns, they're, they're, there's this scene and they're in, they're in heaven and it says, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. So if we are living as dual citizens, we just need to recognize that one of those kingdoms will last and one won't. That will help us with our priorities. You know what? There's no blueprint in the pages of the scripture for the, quote, right type of government. The people of God have lived under a lot of different types of governments. Amen? Everything from a, a, you know, a democratic republic like what we have to uh, the most harsh and controlling you know, communist dictatorship. There's a pastor named Mark Dever, pastor and author. He's in uh, uh, Washington, D.C. He leads a church in Washington, D.C. He has both Republicans and Democrats who come to his church. It's, it's remarkable. I listened to a sermon of his recently on it and uh, on the subject of politics. I'll link to it up on the website. I would highly encourage you to listen to it. But one of the quotes that he said related to this point was just brilliant. He said this, Until Christ's return, his people will be under the rule of all sorts of kings and emperors, as Joseph and Daniel had been in the Old Testament, as Christ himself was. Friends, all such reigns of kings and congresses would be temporary. And Christians are like, by God's grace, cockroaches, we can survive anything. Yes! We are not dependent on just governments for the gospel going forward. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? So, so honestly, like, we, we are involved. We seek to have influence where we're able, where God gives us opportunity. But at the end of the day, nations rise, nations fall. The kingdom of God will last forever. Our hope is secure, and we can chill out a little bit. Finally, in conclusion, three points. Number one, what should we do? How do we live this out? Okay. Let me say this. First of all, be involved as you have opportunity. You know, there have been people of God throughout the ages who have not had opportunity to be involved in politics, to be involved in government. I was talking with Dale. Dale's one of our deacons this morning. Dale, you're on the city council. Are you mayor yet of Briar? Just about. Okay. All right. Well, I can't campaign for you, but that's... Uh, Good for you. Uh, I was talking with Dale and he was saying, you know, the, the opportunity he has, a lot of people ask him, why in the world would you want to do something like that? To do good in the common grace sphere of the government. This is an incredible thing that we have the opportunity to vote. You have the opportunity to call your congressman, your congresswoman. You have the opportunity to participate in all sorts of ways that not only in the world right now, people don't have the opportunity, but in the history of the people of God, they haven't had opportunity to. 
So get involved, be involved to whatever degree that you have the ability. But let me just tell you one opportunity that each and every single one of us has and something that God hit me so strongly in conviction this week that I do not take up enough. I don't do a good job at this and that is to pray. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, I urge then that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all All who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. There's that common grace. Godly and dignified in every way. This is good. Now listen to what he says. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I tried to study it out. I ran out of time. But there's some sort of linkage in there between us praying for our leaders and having a peaceable and quiet life and more people coming to know Jesus as the king. I don't know what the connection is exactly. Somebody study that out and send me an email this week. But you can pray. You can pray. And if I'm being transparent with you, there are many times where my sinful, cynical heart does not want to pray for the rulers and the authorities. And that's sin. It's a sin of omission. Number two. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, as a dual citizen, you got to get used to tension. The way of politics, the, the current political climate in, in the United States of America is to flatten everything out. Oh, you have this opinion, you're this party. You have that opinion, you're that party. You think this about a certain thing, you're just, you're that. Uh, and, and, and we who participate in the political conversation in that way of flattening other people out, that is also wrong. You gotta get used to tension. There are going to be things that are values to the kingdom of America that are in complete opposition to the kingdom of God. There will be times when the values of the earthly kingdom line up with the kingdom of God. Praise God for that. Uh, Should we be good citizens? Yes. Should there be a subversive, the city authorities are stressed out by us element? Yes. Are we, are we going to seek to influence society? Yes. Are we part of a different kingdom and a different society altogether? And yes. Like this, there's tension there. Amen. You got to get used to living in that tension of being a citizen of the kingdom of God and of the kingdom of man. And then number three, seek to understand, which to put another way is just pursue humility This week, I put up an action step for you to find somebody, another Christian brother or sister, someone who worships Jesus, has surrendered their lives to Jesus, who has different political leanings than you do, and have a conversation with them to find out why they think that way. And the answer is not because they're a brain-dead idiot. (laughs) So I'll spare you that part, okay? Okay. Like, I'm, I'm not going to call anybody out by name, but like just looking around the room, I know enough of you, I've had enough conversations, I know that you might be shocked to know that right in front of you, in the row next to you and beside you, is someone of a different political party than you. If you think you have more in common with a non-Christian of your same political party than you do with a Christian brother or sister of a different political party, you are in sin and you need to repent. Your allegiance is to King Jesus 
and disagree as you may. And even, I'm not saying there are no substantial disagreements. There are. But we are united around King Jesus and the kingdom of God will last. So ask them, why, why do you see things this way? Why do you, you know, what, what would make you kind of vote this way? Or, or what about this problem? And then they're going to do the same to you and it can be, it could be civil. And for the love of all that is holy, don't do it on social media, please. Go get coffee with someone. Pursue Jesus. Pursue him and the humility will come. And, and as, as Christ changes you and brings that humility into your life, you'll start to see that those things sometimes that we divide over aren't, aren't maybe quite as big of a deal as we think they are. There's a pastor in Nashville, Scott Sauls. And I'll close with this quote. He says this, the more like Christ we become, the more his fractured image in us will be restored. The more his fractured image in us is restored, the less we will want to medicate our fractured egos by putting others down and diminishing others' dignity through gossip, slander, prejudice, and exclusion. And the less we diminish others' dignity, the more we will want to uphold and affirm and celebrate others' dignity as Jesus does. And the more we uphold and affirm and celebrate others' dignity as Jesus does, the less prone we will be to take sides in ways that Jesus does not. Jesus, our King, we ask and pray that you would unite us in a way that is reflective of your authority, your reign, your rule. God, would you, would you let that start in our hearts as individuals? Would you let us, as, as family members, as, as small groups, as community groups, have these conversations in a, in a loving and gracious and gentle way? God, would we as a church community be known uh, for the type of righteousness that exalts a nation, the type, of, the type of love and care that does good for the city as we have opportunity. And Jesus, where we don't have those opportunities, may we trust in your eternal kingdom to not let the nations rage and the, and the kings plot in vain to understand our, our King Jesus is on the throne forever and that it would give us peace. We pray this all in the name of our King Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, we did it. So now that we've talked about politics, I'd like to talk to you about money. Uh, we're going to give, uh, take an offering, right? <laughs> oh, Sound City Bible Church, embracing the awkward since 2015. We're going to give of our tithes and our offerings as a way of worshiping and honoring God. If you're a guest or a visitor, there's no obligation to give. If you're a regular part of the church, there's no pressure obligation to give, but an invitation to give as worship to our King Jesus to support the work of the ministry here at Sound City and, and, and other ministries that we support. They're going to collect the offering now. Uh, if you want to give online or text to give, you can do that as well. But give as an act of worship as, as King Jesus would lead you. While they're collecting the offering, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11 because we're about to gather around the table, the table of our king, the king who washes the feet of his followers, both zealot and tax collector, we're going to gather around this common table. I'll read from 1 Corinthians 11. It says, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Our king died and rose again that we could be reconciled to God and to one another around this table. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then 
And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Specifically, I mean, you can examine and, and allow God to convict your heart however he sees fit. I would encourage you, God, where have I put my trust in princes, in the kingdoms of man? Where have I put my trust in earthly authority above and beyond your authority? Jesus, you're the king. We give this time of response to you. May we bring our hearts, our lives, our minds, our bodies, our possessions, everything we are. May we bring them to you in absolute loyalty. Jesus, you are our king. You deserve all of our praise, all of our worship. So we give it to you now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.